you're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. As soon as Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard how Joshua had captured Ai and had devoted it to destruction, doing to Ai and its king as he had done to Jericho and its king, and how inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were among them, he feared greatly, because Gibeon was a great city, like one of the royal cities, and because it was greater than Ai, and all its men were warriors. So Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, sent to Hoham, king of Hebron, to Piram, king of Jamath, to Jephiah, king of Lachish, and to Debir, king of Eglon, saying, Come up to me and help me, and let us strike Gibeon, for it has made peace with Joshua and with the people of Israel. Then the five kings of the Amorites, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jamath, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon, gathered their forces and went up with all their Amorites and encamped against Gibeon and made war against it. And the men of Gibeon sent to Joshua at the camp of Gilgal, saying, Do not relax your hand from your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us and help us. For all the kings of the Amorites who dwell in the hill country are gathered against us. So Joshua went up from Gilgal. He and all the people of war with him and all the mighty men of valor. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. Not a man of them shall stand before you. So Joshua came upon them suddenly, having marched up all night from Gilgal. And the Lord threw them into a panic before Israel, who struck them with a great blow at Gibeon, and chased them by the way of the ascent of Beth Horon, and struck them as far as Azekah and Makedah. And as they fled before Israel, while they were going down the ascent of Beth Horon, the Lord threw down large stones from heaven on them, as far as Azekah, and they died. There were more who died because of the hailstones than the sons of Israel killed with the sword. At that time Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord gave the Amorites over to the sons of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, Son, stand still at Gibeon, and moon in the valley of Ajalon. And the sun stood still, and the moon stopped, until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. Is this not written in the book of Joshua? The sun stopped in the midst of heaven, and did not hurry to set for about a whole day. There has been no day like it before or since, when the Lord heeded the voice of a man, for the Lord fought for Israel. Good morning, City on a Hill. How are we? Whoa, sun stands still. <laughs> hey, good to have you with us uh, if we haven't had the chance to meet before. My name is Nick, uh, and I get the joy of being the lead pastor of this church. How are we doing this morning? Good. We're good. Good. Ready to dive in to some heavy chapters in Joshua, but also some very encouraging chapters. Uh, before we do, just wanted to put out there my personal invite to you to consider uh, this week locking in your ticket for our City on a Hill conference, which is coming up at the end of May. Uh, this week is the final week for early bird tickets. 
Uh, and there's people coming from Brisbane, the Gold Coast, uh, Wollongong, up from Geelong. It would be awesome to have a large contingent from the eastern suburbs sweeping on in uh, to the city for that conference. Uh, I know God in his providence often uses these, these moments where we step out of our normal routine uh, to shape us, sharpen us, challenge us. And I know personally with Matt Chandler coming, he for me personally has been a very formative voice uh, into my own walk with Jesus. And so he is going to be particularly encouraging, I'm sure, and challenging. Uh, and so We'd love you to be there, and we'd love for you uh, to come along. It will be worth the day off work. Uh, it will be worth the trek into the city, and it's be great to have you. Uh, now we're going to dive in to Joshua 10 and 11 and 12. That's the assignment that I've been given. Uh, but you probably notice that the book of Joshua is a little bit like the uh, first season of the TV show Prison Break. Like every single episode is awesome. Every single episode is incredible, and it's true again today that even though we've got three chapters, there's so much uh, kind of uh, monumental things happening throughout these chapters that we're going to kind of look at the big theme across the chapters, but also drill down into what we just read in chapter 10. Uh, If you do have your Bibles, now would be a great time uh, to do that as we get to chapter 10. Uh, And it's good to remember that we as Christians who gather, why do we gather? Uh, One of the reasons we gather is because we love to see each other and we love to socialise and that meet and greet moment and before and after church and seeing each other. I'm encouraged by your presence here this morning. Uh, But that's not the primary reason that we gather. That's a a byproduct. That's a fringe benefit. Uh, The primary reason that we gather, the reason we pray before the Bible reading is because we're here for that moment. We're here to hear from God in his word. And so we're going to do what we are here for. Uh, If you are just joining us, we are now uh, in the third last week of our Joshua series. It's going to lead up till Easter. And Joshua is a book written by the man himself, Joshua, about events some 3,300 years ago, where God was taking his people and fulfilling his promises to them. Specifically, those promises of making a family and giving that family a place, a home, the promised land. And especially by giving them that land to set up an environment where centuries later, he might be able to come himself in Jesus to save us from the mess that we created by our rebellion against him. And so in Joshua 10 to 12, we come to the conclusion of the taking of the land, the conclusion of the fulfilling of the promise to give Israel the land. This is where started in Jericho when the people sung and walked around the city, it's going to end today as the people sweep into Israel and go to the south and to the north and effectively defeat almost everybody. So we're going to dive in to chapter 10 and then we're going to zoom out uh, throughout it. Join me in 10 verse 1. It says this, as soon as Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard how Joshua had captured Ai and had devoted it to destruction, doing to Ai and its king as he had done to Jericho and its king, and how the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were among them, he feared greatly. Because Gibeon was a great city, like one of the royal cities, and because it was greater than Ai and all its men were warriors. And so last week we met this place called Gibeon, the Gibeonites, and it was the leading city in the center of the promised land. And that took the peace treaty route with Israel. And so there was no war. And so they were allied now 
Well, Jerusalem, Jerusalem is further to the south, and we just read that you know, they were pretty freaked out, first by Gibeon and how, how big they were and how mighty they were, but now the fact that they've aligned themselves with Israel. And so Jerusalem makes an alliance with all the cities of the south to come against Gibeon. And we read in, in verse 5, it says that they all gathered their forces and went up with all their armies and encamped against Gibeon and made war against it. Now, speaking of war, there's that great scene, isn't there, in uh, The Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring, uh, where uh, everyone's thinking about what, what are we going to do? How are we going to get into Mordor? And there's Sean Bean there. Uh, and he tells Gandalf and he tells Frodo what has become a meme since then. You know, one does not simply walk into Mordor. And it's as if Jerusalem had, had missed the meme. Because we could rephrase it and say, you know, one does not simply make war against God Almighty. They don't know what they're getting themselves into. They're trying to go after Gibeon, but Gibeon is aligned with Israel. And so we read that Gibeon reaches out to Joshua. Joshua marches up with his valiant men. And on the way, the Lord has something to say. And we're going to think about this. The Lord, in verse 8, says this. The Lord said to Joshua, do not fear them. For I have given them into your hands. Not a man of them shall stand before you. So Joshua came upon them suddenly, having marched up all night from Gilgal, and the Lord threw them into a panic before Israel, who struck them with a great blow at Gibeon and chased them by the way of the ascent of Beth Horon and struck them as far as Azekah at Makedah. And as they fled before Israel, while they were going down the ascent of Beth Horon, the Lord threw down large stones from heaven on them as far as Azekah, and they died. There were more who died because of the hailstones than the sons of Israel killed with the sword. And I want you to notice something about those verses there, that paragraph. You know, one of the, one of the benefits we have uh, of having the Bible is that we Christians believe that the Bible is God's revelation to us about historical events that have happened and about his involvement in those events. It's not merely uh, man's speculation about what may have perhaps transpired as we reflect back on historical moments. So that means the, the Bible gives us insight into the cause of things happening that for events that aren't in the Bible, we don't have that insight. We don't know the cause. And what we see just here in these few verses is that God is at pains to communicate that he is the one that's doing the fighting. We've seen that in the last few weeks, in these weeks looking at the conquests of the promised land. But here he says it specifically, he says, I have given them into your hands. And then we're told that God threw them into a panic before he himself started piffing down hailstones upon them. We'll see in a moment how God did this in a miraculous and momentous way. But let's just, let's just think about that reality in a moment, that God's at pains to communicate that he is the one doing the fighting. Now, I know that uh, every piece of technology comes with its own drawbacks. Who here loves their phone? You love, you know, I love my phone. It's incredible technology. But we're also at the same time addicted to our phones, aren't we? It comes with drawbacks. Uh, social media as well. It comes with just a great way to connect with people, keep up to date with people that you don't see every so often, check in with that person in high school whether their life turned out well when you thought it wouldn't, those kinds of things. But there's significant drawbacks for social media as well, isn't there? And one of the drawbacks with social media is the possibility of people today being catfished. Now, you might not know what that term means, but catfish is a, a term that was coined by a, a photographer named Nev Shulman. 
Uh, he was a, a photographer in New York, and his brother was a documentary maker, and just started making a documentary about Nev, uh, because Nev struck up an online relationship over Facebook. Uh, with a, a young woman, and so he thought, hey, this, this might be a cool story. This was back in the, the kind of halcyon days there of, of 2010 or something like that, uh, and so Nev was on the forefront here of online relationships, and he uh, had struck up this uh, relationship uh, with an older sister of a young painter who would paint Nev's public photography, and so the relationship blossomed, uh, and then they became uh, official, both online and offline. And uh, Nev was introduced online to the kind of whole circle of uh, friends and family connections to his new girlfriend. And it was getting serious. They were uh, thinking about their, their future together, plotting it out. They were sending gifts to one another. They were sharing intimate moments together and their, their life's kind of details and secrets. And Nev, in his mind, had a clear idea about who his girlfriend was was. The problem was that they'd never actually met in person. And so after a series of incidents that, that kept them from meeting, Nev and his filmmaker brother, with the camera on, decided to, to drive the day-long journey it would be uh, for him to finally come to the address of the house where his girlfriend supposedly lived. Uh, and you can watch the documentary, but let me first ruin it for you. Uh, they knock on the door. And your heart's racing as you're watching, and they knock on the door, and they, they discover that, well, yes, hey, there is in this house a young girl who likes painting. It's actually her older sister isn't there at all. In fact, her, her older sister doesn't live there at all. It hasn't been there for a long time. Instead, it's her mum who has been masquerading online as a completely different young woman, her daughter, and she created a web of friends and family who only existed as Facebook profiles and yet interacted with each other, all kind of directed or orchestrated by the same woman. And so it's a great lesson, isn't it? There are real limitations to knowing someone when you're dealing with images and words. Well, we have a technology here, the technology of the written word in the Bible. And especially we modern people. We need to be mindful, don't we, that we don't catfish ourselves when it comes to crafting our own view of who God is. That is, we take the data from the Bible about who God is, the revelation, that we can be very prone, can't we, to, to focus on the things that, that, that feel nice and sentimental and friendly to us and forget about the things that seem a little bit harsh, a little bit distant, a little bit judgy. And so we can domesticate God, we can sentimentalize God, we can uh, make him into kind of a, a grandfather figure in our lives, or the grandfather we would love to have. And we start to view God in our own image, that he's open to change and adaptation. We paint a picture of him in our minds. But then the book of Joshua comes along. Stories like this come along and they tell us something about God that we perhaps, perhaps wouldn't make up if it was merely up to us. What we learn in this text is that God is a warrior. God is a warrior. You know, some 232 times in the Old Testament, God is referred to as the Lord of hosts. You know what Lord of hosts means? It means God of armies. He is the God of armies. God is a Warrior, He is the one here in this story and throughout the book of Joshua who is at war with his enemies who are currently occupying the promised land. He is the one who brings the most effective and weighty judgment 
upon evil that's in this place. And when we met uh, this reality as the, the people circled the city of Jericho, I talked about why it's actually a good thing, why, why it's good that, that God would judge his enemies, because God is fiercely loyal to his people as a loving father. And that he is fiercely against evil that hurts his creation and tarnishes his glory. And so because it's a good thing, we don't get any sense from this text that God's apologetic about it. In fact, God wants to encourage us because of it. And yet at the same time, it is jarring that we might read that God throws down hailstones on these nations. And perhaps it's jarring for us, particularly modern people, because don't we have a propensity to separate the sin from the sinner? The two can't go together. The sin is bad, but it's different than humanity. And so we psychologize sin away. We detach it from the person. And so we typically look for causes for the sin that are external to the person, like environmental how we were brought up, or situational, or maybe generational. But in the Bible, there isn't so much of a separation between the sin and the sinner, that we are responsible for what goes on inside of us. We are responsible for the things we feel, the things we think, the things that we say. Tim Keller points out a moment in the book, The Silence of the Lambs, where the killer, uh, Hannibal Lecter, comes uh, to have a conversation with Officer Starling. And he's describing the, the bad things that he's done. And the officer looks at him and says, What happened to you that you could do this? Who did something to you that you would be so bad? And Hannibal looks at her and says, Nothing happened to me. I happened. You can't reduce me to a set of influences. You've given up good and evil for behaviorism. You've got everybody in moral dignity pants. Nothing is ever anybody's fault. Look at me, officer. Can you stand to say I'm evil? And Keller comments that if you get rid of the idea of sin, of Satan, of cosmic evil, then every bad deed is solely psychological or sociological roots. And that actually trivializes the suffering of real victims. It trivializes the magnitude of what's happened. And so Hannibal Lecter knows that this officer is just the result of modern secular thinking. And so he asks a question that her worldview doesn't have the resources to answer. He says, in effect, you, tell, you have to tell all the families of those poor people that I beheaded and ate that my mother didn't love me. You can't hold me responsible. You can't hold her responsible. And so he shows up the modern world's thinking. But what the Bible tells us is that real evil exists in the human heart. And so then to deal with real evil, you have to deal with humans. So God holds us responsible. And God acts on that responsibility by bringing accountability. And so God is here warring against these nations that have been committing so much evil over the generations and themselves, that his patience is now worn out. And that's a good thing. That's something we should be encouraged about. Because the passage assures us that God really will deal with real evil. And maybe you're here today and, and, and real evil has been committed against you. 
Maybe you have experienced at the hands of, of, of others unjust things, things that you can't find a, a resolution to, where your injustice burns within you and yet you can't ever have that be satisfied where you can because God will deal with it. God will deal with real evil. But the passage also points us beyond uh, ourselves and this repetition that, that God is a warrior. It's also there an encouragement to us to, to look to the high point of the moment where God would make holy war. For sure he's doing it here, but he's going to do it again at the cross, cross of Jesus. Because that God is a warrior and God would ultimately fight for his people. He shows that most of all while he sends his own son to lay down his life for the church. And it's in that moment where God made holy war upon sin and upon death, not by striking us down, but by being struck down in his son. See, in that moment, all of God's fierce loyalty for his people, all of his fierce anger against sin and its destructive force in the world, well, that violence fell upon his son. And he initiated it. He planned it. He sovereignly brought it about and he did it so that you and I might be free from the evil that is within us. That though we are to bear the real consequences, Jesus instead bore the real consequences for us. And so that means that you and I, we don't need to explain away our sin. We don't need to go back into the depths of our being to find out why it is that we're being wired in such a way that we would commit these things or think these things or feel these things. We don't need to psychologize ourselves out of our guilt. Rather, the Lord's words to us are repent. We can repent of our sin, and Jesus puts it away. Jesus takes our guilt. But as a warrior, if you're in Jesus, God fights for you. And we see that particularly as the story goes, and we get to this, this monumental moment where God changes the natural course of physics for the sake of his people. As the nations are bearing down on Israel, we're told in verse 12, at that time, Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord gave the Amorites over to the sons of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, sun, stand still at Gibeon and moon in the valley of Ajalon. And the sun stood still and the moon stopped until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. Is this not written in the book of Jashar? The sun stopped in the midst of heaven and did not hurry to set for about a whole day. There has been no day like it before or since when the Lord heeded the voice of a man, for the Lord fought for Israel. And so here we have something truly momentous. God is a warrior, and yet he heeds the voice of Joshua. He is an approachable warrior with his heart primed for his people. And so Joshua speaks to him and Joshua prays that he might have the, the sun stand still. And we're told the sun stood still, the moon stopped. Now, of course, with our 21st century scientific mindsets, we might object. Hey, the sun is always still. This is not a miracle. Let's move on, friends. What's written here is, of course, isn't a, a scientific conviction. 
Uh, and we should think about that because with all our knowledge in the 21st century, we still use the same phrases as the 13th century BC, as these uneducated people, apparently. If you and I are, are watching the sunrise, I've never uh, been with anybody, whether it's sunrise or sunset, who looks at it and says, man, how beautiful is it that the earth is turning in such a perfect way that we might now be able to see more of the sun or, or less of the sun as it may be. No one describes what's happening there in scientifically accurate language. Don't we say the sun is coming up? It's not really coming up. We say the sun is going down. It's not really going down. We are moving on the Earth's axis. So it's very normal to talk in non-scientific terms about this process. It's also worth knowing that there are options for what this might mean and what the text is actually saying. Because some argue uh, that this is referring to the sun staying in the sky for a longer portion than a 24-hour period or, or, or perhaps a 12-hour uh, period, making the day longer than normal. Other commentators read it as if it is saying that actually because it was before dawn, it's, it's actually that the, the dawn was delayed and so it was actually darker for longer. And still others, it's also, you know, remind us that it's also true that in the ancient Near Eastern world, uh, nations, particularly these pagan nations, took the lunar movements in a month's length, calendar, as good or bad omens toward engaging in military moments or battle. And so it could be that God made it sure that it wasn't a full moon on the 14th that month, and so the nation that Israel were fighting against were discouraged from fighting and therefore more easily defeated. Now personally, I read it, uh, and, and I'm a simple man, I take it as it's read, I think it's the, the first option that the earth literally stopped on its axis for a time so that the day of God's judgment might be extended against his enemies. God set up the world of physics. God can change the course of physics as he sees fit. Now, either way, whatever option, the reality is the same. God is a warrior who works miracles on behalf of his people in judgment of his enemies. And in the passage, it's amazing that the sun standing still really isn't the most amazing thing that Joshua reflects on. What he thinks is most amazing is verse 14. There has been no day like it before or since when the Lord heeded the voice of a man, for the Lord fought for Israel. So God is a warrior. He's a warrior who wants to hear from his people, that he fights for us. Perhaps even more miraculously, he listens to us. The book of James says, you have not because you ask not. There are things in your life and around you and in the world that have not happened because we haven't asked God to do it. We haven't had the faith to seek him and pray to him. And it's amazing that God in his sovereignty has baked into his governance of the world that you and I might pray the prayers that he once prayed so that his will might come about in the world. So some of us are fighting against our sin. Some of us are dealing with the demonic. Some of us are flirting with temptation. And God wants to hear from us. God wants to step in. God wants to help. God wants to fight so this is an encouragement that God takes heed of the voice of his people. And so we can pray. We can pray. 
You know, one of the, the greatest works of literature uh, is the Narnia series by C.S. Lewis. I quote it all the time. I'm going to do it again. Uh, and in the, you know, the, the best story of that series, The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, when we're just meeting all the characters and the young children are stepping into Narnia for the first time and they're getting to know Narnia as well and they hear about this, this, this Aslan figure uh, from the beavers, Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, and they're heading to the beaver's house for some tea and scones and safety, uh, and uh, the conversation continues about Aslan being on the move. And so Lucy asks, this, this Aslan, is, is he a, a man? Mr. Beaver says, Aslan, a man? Certainly not. I tell you, he's the king of the wood, the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know he's the king of beasts? Aslan is a lion, the great lion. And Susan interjects, I thought he was a man. Is he, is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Mrs. Beaver says, that you will, dearie. And no mistake, if there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy, safe. Mr. Beaver says, don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king. It's a great image that reminds us of what is revealed about God in these kind of moments. God is ferocious. God is a warrior. God is sovereign. He has all the power. Everything is bent in his direction. And yet, praise God, he's good. His heart is toward us. His ears bent down, inclined, wanting to hear from us. God isn't safe, but he's good. And now for us, you and me, living post the cross of Jesus, you and I get to delight in that reality, perhaps more than what these nations that were being warred against did, because the, the epoch of God's relationship with the world has, has shifted in a way that makes the time that you and I are living in a time of unique and particular opportunity. Because here in this story, whereas God is judging the nations in the promised land with the blunt instrument of his own people, with hailstones, God is now calling people from all nations to come and receive his mercy and his salvation in Jesus. Whereas the sun stood still in this moment, to extend the day of judgment so that his enemies would be completely wiped out. We know that on the cross of Jesus, God did the opposite. He took the sun away so that darkness might come as he poured out his judgment upon his own son, Jesus, as he bore the punishment we deserve. And because of that, the day that you and I live in today, whereas God extended that day, that time of judgment over the Canaanites, today God extends this time of peace, extends this time of grace, extends this offer of mercy, we're told, because he doesn't want anyone to perish, but that all might seek repentance so that we might find the consequences of our sin dealt with in Jesus by repenting and turning to him and so that we might find our life also wrapped up with Jesus forever. And so unlike them, today we live in a day of salvation, a day of opportunity. And you can know that salvation. 
You can accept that invitation. But just as God does himself, we need to deal with the reality of our sin. We need to see, like him, the evil that is within us for what it is. We need to recognize that we've been running from God, that we've been ignoring God, or perhaps we've been replacing God. But the offer is that you can repent, and you can come to Jesus, and you can receive mercy and grace and salvation, and you can enjoy it, and you can delight in it now as a foretaste for what forever is going to feel like. So more monumental than an interruption to the normal course of physics in the universe is the significance of God himself stepping in to the world that he made so that he might interrupt heaven for us and that we might be welcomed in, invited in. And so the Lord has fought for us and the Lord has won in Jesus Finally, chapter 10 concludes and chapter 11 tells us about all the strategic movements of the Israelites, that they uh, go down south to the cities that have allied against them, uh, and then they head up north, uh, and then chapter 12 summarizes all the, the conquests against the kings throughout the time of Moses and Joshua. But in chapter 11, there's this uh, kind of reality that Joshua wants to make sure we don't miss. And that is that he, he goes at length to describe just how difficult the possibility of, of this war was, was against them. Read with me in, in Joshua 11, verse 4 to 6. After describing all the kings of the north, he says, And they came out with all their troops, a great horde, in number like the sand that is on the seashore, with very many horses and chariots, and all these kings joined their forces and came and encamped together at the waters of Merom to fight against Israel. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid of them, for tomorrow at this time I will give over all of them slain to Israel. You shall hamstring their horses and burn their chariots with fire. And so Joshua wants us to know the scope size, the might of the enemies that he was up against. The great horde, we're told. They numbered like sand on the seashore, very many horses and chariots. He wants us to know that in comparison, Israel was very weak. And we see this throughout the scripture. Often there's these, these stories. Sometimes it's very explicit that God is setting up the story so that Israel would be in the weak position because he wants to show his strength. And as I've been doing throughout this sermon, let me connect that reality to our own day and our own experience. God has fought for us in Jesus. And yet in some sense, we're told in the New Testament that, that, that a fight continues to rage on. That you and I aren't now in any kind of physical battle, I hope, but we are in a, a spiritual battle against non-human enemies. We're called to love our enemies, to pray for those who persecute us. And so we're freed from trying to build on earth here a Christian nation state because we know that Christ is building his church in every single nation state around the world. And so the enemies that Christ battles for us now, having put away our sin and death, spiritual beings. We're told that they're called powers, principalities. 
And I realize this might sound weird to those of us unfamiliar with the world of the Bible. The Bible, though, has a different view of what our modern minds might have around the world. The Bible tells us that there are real devils, real spirits, real forces and powers seeking to suppress us or oppress us. And we're told that they're intimidated, that the devil himself prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. And so we're no match for these forces, for these powers that are trying to come against us. It's a little bit like Israel. We face this this great horde, this intimidating prospect. And yet just like them, we're told that God triumphs over the spiritual world as well. We see that when Jesus came into the world, as he went about doing his ministry, he'd often come upon these evil spirits. And often they would fall down before him because they knew who he was and they would plead for mercy. Such was the power that Jesus had in front of them. In the book of Colossians, Paul tells us what happened to them on the cross. It says, And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by cancelling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. And so we get life and our spiritual enemies get shame. Evil forces coming against us can try their hardest, but they cannot take what is most important and eternal of all, our unity and our salvation in Jesus. And so these three chapters, Joshua 10, 11, and 12, show us the threat. They show us the, the challenge, but miraculous fighting by God on behalf of his people wins the day. And these three chapters also become a a microcosm of you and I and our spiritual life together. We see that God is a warrior. That God is a, a warrior who has gone to war for you against your sin and death. And in doing so, he turned the sword on himself, taking the punishment for our sin so that we would be free from it that it was so deeply entrenched inside of us that only death could deal with it. And yet, praise God, it wasn't your death. It was Jesus' death. And now we're told that God continues warring for our sake against the evil one who comes against us. And he has effectively been defanged. I remember when the, the kids were babies and they didn't yet have teeth. And you can kind of like play around with their mouth and know that you weren't going to get snapped. The devil is now being defanged. Yes, he prowls around like a roaring lion, and yet he does so without ultimate power because God has fought for us. Now, there is a a lot of blood in this passage, but blood exists in the Bible to show us what our sin costs. And so we're going to remember that great monumental moment, and that's why you've probably all been confused. What are these people doing up the front here? We're going to celebrate communion together, which is remembering the blood blood shed for us in our place that we might be so united with what Jesus has done for us in his death we get to celebrate today and enjoy the grace the benefits 
the spiritual provision that he provides us through this meal. So we're going to celebrate this moment when death was defeated, when Jesus poured out his love and mercy upon his church, upon all of us here who have repented and trusted in him. So the team's going to start handing out the elements. Feel free to do that. Uh, If you are uh, gluten-free, please take of the crackers inside the plates with the cups. And as you do take them, please hold on to both the juice and to the bread or the cracker, and we're going to take it together. While they're coming around, you should know communion is a family meal. And so if you are here and you are trusting in Jesus, you are welcome to partake of the meal. But if you're here and you're still throwing around questions about Jesus, perhaps not really sure about this whole Christianity thing, let me just encourage you to let the plate pass before you and just observe what we Christians do, as weird as we are. Just observe what it is that we do together in celebrating communion like this. Communion reminds us that God has fought for us to the point of dying in our place. And that as we partake, we partake of a means of His grace, that the promise is that He's going to strengthen us. He's going to be with us in a particular way that He wouldn't otherwise be if we didn't have this meal together. And we pray today that it would be a reminder that He might continue holding us, keeping us, pointing us back to His work and away from our own. So I'm going to land the plane by praying, both for what we've heard in Joshua 10, 11 and 12, and for our hearts as we ready ourselves to partake of communion and then we'll take it together afterwards. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you for Jesus. We praise you that we see in in texts like this the incredible, practical, personal, deep significance of what you've done for us in your son Jesus. Lord, that apart from Jesus, we deserve death. Apart from Jesus, we deserve your judgment. Apart from Jesus, we deserve to be wiped out and destroyed. And yet in Jesus, he bore that punishment. He bore that death. He was, in a sense, wiped out and destroyed upon the cross for our sake. And so, Lord, we praise you for him. And we praise you that you have given us your word to build our life around that points us to the good news of what you've done for us in Jesus. That you, beyond that, gave us the word becoming flesh. And so enfleshed was he that he bled for us, that his body was given over for us, that we might find life in his death. And so, Lord, help us cling to you Help us know that you are bending your ear down to us as you are a warrior and yet one who is for his people. And so, Lord, we approach you humbly, not because of our own righteousness this morning, but rather we come to you trusting in your great mercy. We thank you for these gifts, this bread and juice. And we pray that we who eat and drink of them in the fellowship of the Holy Spirit and in obedience to our Savior Christ Jesus might be partakers by faith of his body and his blood. Lord, renew us 
by your Holy Spirit. Unite us in the body of your Son and bring us into the joy of your eternal kingdom through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.